All right. Revelation 18. We got a lot to cover this morning, and we, wanna, we want to finish Babylon this morning. You don't want any more Babylon. We, we want to get to 19 and to the return of Christ, you know? So, Revelation 18. You also will want to find the book of Isaiah. Um, we're going to be in a couple chapters in Isaiah, chapter 13, and I believe chapter 41. Um, but we'll be in the book of Isaiah as well quite a bit, so you might want to save somewhere in the book of Isaiah so you can find it quickly. Revelation 18 and the book of Isaiah. <clears throat> Lord, we want to hear from you, from your word now, and so we pray that you'd pour out your spirit upon us and speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. Chapter 17 ended with the Antichrist and his coalition destroying uh, religious Babylon, that inclusive uh, global religious system that will uh, be in charge or be, you know, permeating the world for the first three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. At that halfway point, though, the Antichrist and his coalition destroys that religious uh, entity. But we must realize that Babylon is not just a religious entity. Uh, it is an, an, also an economic and political system that has seduced the world. And all of that feeds into the worship of the Antichrist at that halfway point of the Great Tribulation. This one world government, this one world economy that's going to feed into uh, the Antichrist's reign. And so this morning, we're going to see God deal with the rest of Babylon, deal with those things. And in this final destruction of Babylon, as prophesied by multiple scriptures, multiple prophets, God has a consistent message for his people. And it's this, don't buy what Babylon's selling. You know, shop somewhere else. Come out of her is the word that God gives to his people. So chapter 18, we begin in verse 1. It says, And after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of demons and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies." We're going to see four voices in chapter 18, and the first voice that speaks here is this angel who descends from out of heaven. After these things, after religious Babylon is destroyed in chapter 17, I saw another angel come down from out of heaven having great power, great authority to act, great jurisdiction from God. And the earth is illuminated, lightened with his glory. You know, the world has been in so much darkness in all these previous chapters that we've been covering in the book of Revelation, but this angel who comes from God's presence, he reflects the brightness of the glory of God, and it shines in the darkness, it illuminates the earth. And he cries mightily with a strong voice saying, Babylon is the great is fallen, is fallen. So, the last time we heard those words was from another angel, and it was the midway point of the Great Tribulation when the false prophet is rolling out the mark of the beast. That was in chapter 15. 
You see, the false prophet rolls that out, that mark of the beast uh, plan, after religious Babylon is destroyed by the Antichrist and the ten rulers who are aligned with him. It's into the midst of the, this destruction of this inclusive global religion that you can believe whatever you want. It's all good. We're all one. We are the world. Into the midst of that, the false prophet, when he, that's destroyed, he says, don't worry. Everything you've hoped for in these last three and a half years is still alive. We still have an amazing economy. We still have an amazing government. Babylon is still great. To which the angel is replying in, Genesis, in Revelation 15, don't buy into that lie. Babylon is fallen. It is fallen. Babylon in every form is as good as dead. And so three years later now, at the end of the Great Tribulation, Babylon's, uh, uh, the angel announces economic and political Babylon's final demise. Now, why does God destroy this too? Why does he destroy the economy of the world? Why does he destroy the government of the world? Because deceptive religion isn't Babylon's only crime. Look at the end of verse 2. For Babylon has become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. If you read Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22, that's the only other time in the New Testament that that word habitation is used. It's telling it speaks of how we are supposed to be a habitation of God through the Holy Spirit. It says, and you are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together grows unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also built together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. Listen, every human being, that includes you and me, we are fallen both by nature and by choice. But God's plan for humanity is something to supersede that. It's for us to be a home for the Holy Spirit, the one who supersedes our fallen nature. The Bible says if we walk in the Spirit, what? We won't fulfill the desires of the flesh, right? That's God's plan for us. And, and so we don't have to live under that law, that rule of the flesh. We don't have to succumb to our flesh, our fallen nature, well, guess what? The Antichrist kingdom has become the exact opposite of what God wants for us. It has become a place that is devoid of the Holy Spirit's presence in people's lives. It is a place not just wholly given over to our sin nature, but wholly given over to the enemy's influence. It's a habitation of demons. And then it's a cage. The word there, and hold, they're the same exact word. It means a guard tower, a fortress. It's become a fortress for every foul spirit and a fortress for every unclean and hateful bird. And I might be saying, what's God got against birds? I like birds. I have a bird at home. The word here, though, when we see it used in the New Testament, it refers to unbelievers, Remember when Jesus told the parables in Matthew 13 and talks about the birds coming up and snatching the seed, the enemy or unbelievers coming up and snatching the seed, and then it talks about the birds lodging in the tree, you know, that is the kingdom of God. We have this unnatural growth, a mustard tree is not supposed to grow to encompass the whole world, and then the birds come and lodge in its branches. They're, they don't belong there, but they find a home there. This is the idea that's being conveyed here. The only things welcome in Babylon are demons and unbelievers. And those demons and those unbelievers guard their way of thinking like a fortress. No other ideology is allowed in. 
If that's all the city did, that would be bad enough. But it has spread that ideology everywhere on the globe. Verse 3, for all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now, when we think of wrath, we usually think of somebody's really mad, right? You know? But the problem is the word wrath in the New Testament, the word that's used here, it's, it's, sorry to say this, but it's the word for orgy. Or hey, it's, it's a word that describes absolute unbridled passion, overwhelming intense desire. The concept here is it's because they have drunk of the wine of the overwhelming sensuality of her idolatry. The idolatry that's described here is this idolatry of self, of self-indulgence. And that idolatry of self that Babylon is, is selling, it bombards the globe until the globe is nearly drowned in it so that the only alternative is to drown or give in. And so instead of fighting against it, the world embraces it. For it says the kings of the earth, they've committed fornication with her. They have indulged in it. The merchants of the earth, they have indulged in it. They have become wealthy. They're waxed rich through the abundance. The word actually means the power of her delicacies. Delicacies. You know, it's good to have an old King James Bible for words like that because we don't use that type of language these days. You know, when we talk about a delicacy, you know, the idea, we think of maybe something that's, you know, a good meal or something like that. But the word here refers to life without checks or limitations, sensual living, just doing whatever feels good. So much today is about how a person feels. What a person feels, what I feel, overrules my commitments, it overrules social mores, it overrules how someone else feels, and certainly overrules what God says. And it's only going to get worse to the point where how a person wants to feel and feeling good in their mind, how whatever that is, that will be all that matters. And the truth is, that mindset, that mentality, or Appealing to that mentality sells. It sells really, really well. Advertising is almost entirely geared toward making you feel better. That if you have this or you do this, you will feel better, whether the product is actually better for you or not. And governing leaders and merchants everywhere are going to profit off that ideology that the false prophet is selling for those last three and a half years. And so because of that, God is going to destroy Babylon. And immediately, you would think, okay, so now we're going to see it. No, immediately after explaining why Babylon is going to be judged, voice number two speaks up. A voice from heaven calls not the world, but God's people to have no part in it. Look at verse four. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins, and that you receive not of her plagues. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Reward her, even as she rewarded you, and double unto her double according to her works. In the cup which she has filled, fill to her double. It says, 
this anonymous voice, we don't know who's speaking, but it comes from out of heaven. It says, you have to come out of Babylon. It's a command. You must come from out of Babylon the great. Don't be a partaker of her sins so that you don't receive of her plagues. Now, we know that religious Babylon wasn't destroyed by a plague from God. It was attacked by the Antichrist and his coalition. So this is a very different judgment. We see some of the plagues that God brings upon Babylon, the great's political system and economic system, in the bold judgments. We saw darkness is plunged, you know, the the kingdom of, of the Antichrist is plunged into darkness, supernatural darkness. We see some of these judgments that are specifically upon the Antichrist kingdom. And yet, even though we see all of that, the call here to come out of self-indulgent Babylon is not limited just to the end times, because Babylon is not just limited to the end times. If we look throughout Scripture, we see all throughout Scripture there's a consistent phrase concerning Babylon. It's come out, come out of her. Abram was told to come out of his homeland, the plain of Shinar, the Babylonian plain, in Genesis 12, verse 1. Lot's family is told to come out of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. Faithful Israelis were told to come out of Jerusalem in Isaiah 52, verse 11. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18, quotes that verse and applies it to who? You and me. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, it says this. It says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion has light with darkness? What concord is Christ with Belial, with Satan? Or what part has he that believes with an infidel, an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? The answer is, to all those questions, it's nothing, right? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, says the Lord. Do not touch the unclean thing and I will receive you and I will be a father unto you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Whatever Babylon is selling you, I have something better. I will be a father to you. You'll be my son. You'll be my daughter. Because Babylon the Great has been around since Nimrod of the Tower of Babel. It's not just religious Babylon is dangerous. That's what we've been talking about the last two weeks. But this self-indulgent, the self-indulgent governments of the world, the self-indulgent economies of humanity, they have been infecting humanity for millennia. And we are exalted, exhorted all throughout Scripture to come out from her. Let me ask you an important question. What if you lost everything you've worked for in this life, but you still had Jesus and you still had your brothers and sisters in Christ? Would that be enough for you? Would that be enough for you? To be happy, to, to find joy in living. If everything else was gone, I ask the question because it's the constant theme of the New Testament. Because they, those people, those believers, had lost everything. All they had, all that was left was Jesus and their brothers and sisters in Christ. And we see them talking about rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice, right? 
Guys, we have a higher calling than building a kingdom here. It's making disciples so that others can experience the love of Christ and the belonging to the family of God that will never go away. It lasts for eternity. Are you investing into that kingdom? Listen, I may not be around for the great tribulation, but just as surely, when I come back with Jesus, everything I built here will be gone. Anything I built here will be gone. You know, Jesus isn't going to turn to me and say, oh, hey, didn't you have this awesome business when you were alive? Or didn't you achieve this great position in this company? Guess what? I preserved it for you. We destroyed everything else, but I preserved it for you. You're going to, you know, go enjoy it, you know? No. In contrast, the people that you either led to Christ or that you discipled for Christ in your workplace, your neighborhood, your family, your church environment, well, guess what? You get to share all of eternity with them. (laughs) All you invested into them will remain forever. Do you see the difference? Don't forget why we're here, guys. Don't forget what the enemy is trying to overwhelm you with, trying to drown you with. He says, come, indulge. It's delicious. You'll feel great. Don't resist. And Jesus says, instead, come out. Because the end of her road involves wasted time and great loss. Look at Revelation 18, 5. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. That word reached, it's a, a play on words here in regarding Babylon, because it means to join together into a massive pile, to stick yourself to something else that's already there until it builds this massive pile of something. Listen, God may, you know, in the end times, they may not be building an actual physical tower, but what they're doing is just another attempt to reach heaven. We're going to have our utopia, God, without you and without your ways. We're going to create our own better heaven here. And what they do to accomplish that is a stink that stacks so high that it's right up there in the Lord's nose and he has to do something about it. When it says that he remembered, every time it says that in Scripture, it means God begins to be active in the situation. And God remembered Noah. It's not that God forgot Noah. You know, it's not like Gabriel had to go, Lord, he's been on the waters for like six months. Did you forget? Oh, God remembered Noah, you know? No. When it says God remembers something, it means he begins to take an active role in something. He has to do something. And you know what? When God does take action, he'll be fair to her. He'll treat her exactly as she treated those who wanted nothing to do with her. Verse 6 says, reward her even as she rewarded you. Give her double, double unto her according to her works. In the cup which she has filled, fill to her double. Man, when I read that verse, I get chills. Have you ever like just sat down and thought about everything that you've done that was wrong and what you deserve for that? I can't because I get too far into it and then it's just too hard because I know at least I have an idea of what I think I deserve and I know I don't fully even understand what I deserve. And I'm so very glad that God doesn't deal with me according to my sins. Aren't you? In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 16 and 17, it tells us that this is part of the glorious gospel, that he doesn't deal with us according to our sins. 
He says, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds will I write them and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Isn't that awesome? Now, why is that the case for you? If you're a believer here today, why is that the case for you? It's not the case for you because you're any better than Babylon. It's because Jesus rescued you. You came to him and confessed your sin, Lord, and said, I'm a mess. I've blown it. I've sinned against you, and I don't want don't to live that way anymore. I, I, I can't be righteous on my own, but I believe you love me, and you died for me on the cross, and I put all my trust in you. You believed on the Son of God. And so that's the difference. The main problem with this self-indulgent idolatry isn't that it's worse than us. It's because it sticks out its chest and it says, threaten all you want, God. Tell me you're going to give me what I deserve. Tell me you're going to pay double. I don't care. I've got this. Look at verse 7. How much she has glorified herself and lived deliciously, so much torment and sorrow give her. For she says in her heart, I sit a queen and am no widow, and I shall see no sorrow. To the degree that she has lived deliciously, to the same degree give her torment and pain. Whew. I want God to be fair. I don't want God to be fair. I want mercy. I want mercy. How much she has glorified herself and lived deliciously. Again, a good King James word. We don't talk about that. Like, how are you doing today, Will? I'm delicious. <laughs> like, if, you, if I said that, I'd hope you'd be disturbed. And I'd hope you'd think it was negative, you know? I would hope you think it's a negative thing. It's not a positive thing, all right? Because the word here means, again, it's that same word to, uh, to live without life without checks or without limitations, to live sensuously. As much as she has lived for that, give her torment and sadness, pain and sadness. Because she won't repent. She says in her heart, I sit a queen. I'm no widow. I didn't inherit this throne because my husband, the king, died. I won this throne with my own hands. And no one is ever going to take it from me. But here's the reality <laughs> she's not a queen. She's not even a widow. She, she's not married. She's a prostitute. Someone who's selling something fake. A cheap substitute for something that isn't real. And thus, when God says, yes, you will, her destruction comes in a moment. Verse 8. Therefore shall her plagues come in one day. Death and mourning and famine and she shall be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord who judges her. Because of her pride, because of her sensual life, without checks, without limitations, she shall be completely destroyed with fire. Now, these words are echoed in the book of Isaiah chapter 47. So where we'll start. Isaiah 47, a prophecy against the city of Babylon. I may have said 41 earlier, it's 47. Isaiah 47, verse 1. 
Isaiah prophesies, come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground. There is no throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Language sound familiar? Look at verse 5. Sit thou silent and get you into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called the lady of kingdoms. Again, familiar language. Go down to verse 7. And you said, oh, I shall be a lady forever, so that you did not slay these things to your heart, neither did you remember the latter end of it. Therefore, hear now, you that are given to pleasures, that dwells carelessly, that says in your heart, I am, and none else beside me. I shall not sit as a widow, neither shall I know the loss of children. <laughs> but these two things shall come to you in a moment, in one day, the loss of children and widowhood. They shall come upon you in their perfection, their completion, for the multitude of your sorceries and for the great abundance of your enchantments, your deceptions, how you deceived the world. For you have trusted in your wickedness. You have said, none sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge, it's perverted you. And you have said in your heart, I am, and there's none else beside me. Therefore shall evil come upon you. You shall not know from whence it rises, and mischief shall fall upon you. You shall not be able to put it off. And desolation shall come upon you suddenly, which you shall not know. Verse 14, behold, they shall be as the stubble, the fire shall burn them. They shall not deliver themselves from the power of the flame. The destruction will be so complete, there won't even be a coal to warm at, nor fire to sit before it. There won't be a single home left in Babylon. None. Now, that Babylon being burned with fire where there's nothing left has never happened in history. The city of Babylon was captured, portions of it knocked down and rebuilt, but the city has never been burned to the ground since this prophecy was written by Isaiah before, many years before Nebuchadnezzar was, was around even to conquer Judah. Babylon simply fell into decay. And so this has led many Bible students to conclude that Babylon will be rebuilt in the end times. And because of other prophecies, I lean this way too. If we read in Isaiah chapter 13, if you turn there with me, uh, if you read through the first 11 verses, we've done this all throughout Revelation, so I'm not going to read through them all again, but if you read through them, you see all the conditions of the great tribulation. It talks about the day of the Lord. It talks about the day of wrath. If you read down to verses 10 and 11, or verse 9 through 11, Isaiah 13, 9, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened and is going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. And I will punish the world for their evil. But go down now to verses 19 and 20. In the midst of the end times, here comes Babylon again. And Babylon the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldees' excellency, it shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It shall never be inhabited, neither shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation, neither shall the Arabian pitch tent there, neither shall the shepherds make their fold there. That's never happened. I mean, if you go, to, if you go on a tour to the Middle East today and you say, hey, I'd like to see Sodom and Gomorrah, people are going to look at you and go, what? That there is no Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a legend. There's nothing there. There's no existence left. But if you want to go visit Babylon and see, you know, Saddam Hussein's palace that he built there and the ruins, you can go and see that. This has never happened to Babylon. It's never experienced what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. 
It's interesting if you read in uh, Isaiah 14, the prophecy of Babylon's destruction continues there, and then God mentions specifically their king and then calls him by name. And guess what his name is? Lucifer. Now, we already know from the book of Revelation that the Antichrist who rules over this Babylon at the end, he's going to be possessed by Satan, right? So, I mean, it's, it makes sense. One other scripture, Zechariah 5. Zechariah is the second to last book of the Old Testament. So find Matthew, turn left, and you'll get to Zechariah quickly. Zechariah 5, 5 through 11, a, a very obscure prophecy And it says something very interesting. Now, understand context. Zechariah is ministering to the people of Israel after they've returned back from Babylon. This is after the Medo-Persians have conquered Babylon. The Babylonian Empire is not around anymore when Zechariah gives this prophecy. Zechariah 5.5, an angel has been giving him all these visions of different things, and this is a new one. Verse 5, then the angel that talked with me went forth and said unto me, Lift up now your eyes and see what is this that goes forth. Something's going to go traveling. I want you to look up and see what it is. <laughs> Zechariah sees it and he goes, well, what is it? And the angel says, well, it's an ephah that goes forth. It's a, it's a, it's a robe. He sees this robe flying all around. And, and he said, moreover, this is their resemblance through all the earth. This is how they look all throughout wherever they're going on the earth. And behold there was lifted up a talent of lead, a lead disc or cover, and this is the woman that sits in the midst of the ephah. So he pulls off the top so he can see what's inside the robe, and it's a woman. And so in verse 9, then I lifted up my eyes, and, oh no, verse 8, and he said, what's the woman? This is wickedness. And he cast it into the midst of the ephah, and he cast the weight of the lead, put it back on again. And then he, I lifted up my eyes, and I looked, and behold, there came out two women, and the wind was in their wings, for they had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the ephah between the earth and heaven. So they're going to take it throughout the earth. And then I said to the angel that talked with me, where do these carry the ephah? Where are they carrying the robe that has the woman, the, the woman inside? That's wickedness. And he said unto me, to build it a house in the land of Shinar, and it shall be established and set there upon her own base. In other words, we're gonna, the woman's going to go back to where she started, back to where she began, her base. The plain of Shinar is Babylon. It's Babylon. Babylon was still a great city during the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire. Alexander the Great died in the city of Babylon. Babylon didn't fall into ruin until about 125 years later. But Babylon came back into the news in the 1980s when Saddam Hussein began to rebuild it. Every brick that he built there carried, of the buildings that were made there, carried the title built by Saddam Hussein, son of Nebuchadnezzar, for the glory of Iraq. A little creepy. His lavish palace is still something you, that you go to the tour of Babylon, you go and visit his lavish palace there. In a 2016 article about lost cities in the world, uh, this article by The Guardian, the title reads this, Babylon, how war almost erased mankind's greatest heritage site. Wow, I didn't know Babylon was mankind's greatest heritage site. 
The article covered the rebuilding of Babylon by Saddam Hussein and then the damage caused to the site by the Iraq war. And the article closes with this statement, and I quote, not my words, the reporter's words. Though its most ancient ruins are virtually extinct, through its cycle of destruction and reconstruction, and in our collective memory of what it means to be human, Babylon will always endure. Again, creepy. That region in Iraq is still known today as the Babel province. When the government planned to change the name from something else, from not Babel province, hashtag my name is Babel was launched, and in just three days it had over 20,000 tweets. An Iraqi journalist was quoted as saying, Babylon is not just our own history, but a history of all humanity. In 2019, the UN designated Babylon as a World Heritage Site. The press release stated this, the city, and I quote, the city has inspired artistic, popular, and religious culture on a global scale. Babylon still influencing the entire world. I'm not saying that Babylon would be rebuilt. I know some people say it's New York or San Francisco or some other, you know, debaucherous city in the world. I didn't say that. Others say that. So I'm not saying it'll be Babylon. But it is a plausible theory, and it does have good biblical backing. And we do know that whatever this city is, that Babylon's flying around to, I think Zechariah Zechariah tells us it's going to go in different places over time, but eventually it'll come back to Babylon. What we do know is that wherever this city is, it's a specific city that God will destroy by fire because of what the rest of the chapter teaches. Look at verse 9, Revelation 18. And the kings of the earth who have committed fornication and lived deliciously with her shall bewail her and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing afar off for the fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour is your judgment come. Just like Sodom and Gomorrah when Abraham could see the smoke from a distance, Babylon's destruction will be literal, visible, and dangerous to anyone who approaches. This representation of what it means to be human will not always endure in contrast to the Guardian article. And the global leaders will weep to see this bastion of sensuality destroyed but they won't be the only ones to weep. It says the merchants will weep the economic fallout. And the merchants of the earth, they shall weep and mourn over her, for no man buys their merchandise anymore. The reason that no one will be able to buy the merchandise anymore is because the global economy will be tied directly to the system of the mark of the beast by this point. Babylon's destruction will throw the global economy into absolute chaos. Everything will come to a screeching halt. And then in verses 12 through 13, it lists various things that will be gone. It won't be able to traffic in anymore. The merchandise of gold and of silver, precious stones and of pearls and fine linen, all the things you need to be happy, and purple and scarlet and silk and all thyine wood and all manner of vessels of ivory and all manner of vessels most precious wood and of brass and iron and marble and cinnamon and odors and ointments and frankincense and wine and oil and fine flour and wheat and beasts, and sheep, and horses, and chariots, and slaves, 
and souls of men. And the fruits that your soul lusted after, they are departed from you. And all things that were dainty and goodly are departed from you. And you shall find them no more at all. The last two things that are mentioned on this list catch my attention. The word there for slaves, it means literally soma, bodies in the Greek. No more can they sell in the bodies and the souls of people. You know, there's so much debate in our nation today about whether socialism or capitalism is the best. Well, here's a newsflash. God hates every economic system created by men because men's hearts are wicked. And no matter what system mankind creates, the result is the same every time. Our bodies and our souls become enslaved to it. Did you know that it's estimated that over 20 million people are slaves today in the world? The majority of those are, of course, involved in the sex trade industry. Estimates suggest that about 50,000 people are trafficked into the U.S. every year, with 51% of those being children under the age of 18. Neither socialism or capitalism or any other economic system is going to rescue us from that. We need Jesus, folks. We need revival. We need repentance. And I'm not talking about they out there need it. The Barna Group published a report last year regarding Christians' use of pornography, something the pornography industry, if you didn't know it, is heavily influenced by the sex trafficking industry. This report by Barna found that 68% of church-going men and over 50% of pastors view pornography on a regular basis. Of young adults 18 to 24 years old, 76% actively search for pornography. 33% of Christian women aged 25 and under search for pornography at least once per month. And only 13% of self-identified Christian women say they never watch porn. That means 80% of people who self-identify, women who self-identify as Christians, at some point are watching pornography. We need a reality check. Because the reality is, a majority of professing Christians do not care one whit about the person on the other side of the phone or the other side of the computer or the other side of the TV screen. We need to come out of Babylon and come back to our mission which is rescuing people, not contributing to the enslavement of people's bodies and souls. Let me ask you a very serious question. What would happen if every single professing Christian just stopped watching Games of Thrones type media? What would happen to the porn industry if every single professing Christian just stopped connecting to pornography sites? How many might be rescued if we redirected those funds and that energy to sharing the love of Jesus we found with those who don't know it? Well, whether we could impact it or not, God will destroy it all like that. And it will no longer enslave people. And what will the unbelieving world do when that happens? <laughs> they will weep because this great society we've built will be gone. Look at verse 15. I've got to wrap this up quick. We've got two more voices. We see the voice of the merchants who weep, the merchants of these things. Verse 15, Revelation 18, which were made rich by her, they shall stand afar off for the fear of her torment, weeping and wailing. What are we going to do now? Life is over. We can't have pleasure anymore. 
And they say, alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour, so great riches have come to nothing. And every shipmaster and all the company and the ships and ships and sailors and as many as trade by sea, they stood afar off and they cried when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, what city is like unto this great city? And they cast dust on their heads and cried, weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, that great city wherein were made rich, all that had ships in the sea by reason of her costliness, for one hour she is made desolate. I have seen this exact response from hardened men and women when they're caught in adultery or theft or some other betrayal or lie. And they say, fine. I'm a Christian. I'll be a good spouse or the good employee and I'll just be miserable for the rest of my life. As if pleasure is the only thing worth living for. What are you living for? What, what makes life worth living? That's an important question, don't you think? And, and here's the truth of it, guys. You need to answer that question before you can tackle the temptations and the struggles you're having with sin. You need to answer that question. Because you won't come out of Babylon if you think that's where life is really at. You won't. If you think, no, I need this, or I won't be happy without this, then you won't come out of Babylon. Instead of participating in Babylon or weeping over its destruction, we are commanded to rejoice in this great day of vengeance. The final voice comes now, a mighty angel with a millstone. He says, rejoice over her, thou heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. The phrase here, rejoice, is a command. You must rejoice over her. And who is to do it? Literally in the Greek, it says, Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and you holy ones, comma, apostles, comma, and prophets. The word holy ones there means saints. It means us. Now, I, I certainly don't think God is telling us to rejoice over wicked people's destruction because he doesn't do that. In Ezekiel 18, he says, my soul takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But we do find joy or gladness in the justice that's done upon a system that has oppressed both believers and unbelievers for all of history. We are celebrating the fact that it no longer exists. And so here we go. The destruction of Babylon comes. Verse 21. And a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and cast it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence shall that great city Babylon be thrown down and shall be phoned no more at all. And the voice of the harpers and musicians and of pipers and trumpeters shall be heard no more at all in thee. And no craftsman of whatsoever craft he be shall be found any more in you. The sound of the millstone shall be heard no more at all in you. The light of the candle shall no more shine in all, at all in you. And the voice of the bridegroom and the bride shall be heard no more at all in you. For your merchants were the great men of the earth. And for by your sorceries were all nations deceived. Just like Isaiah said. And in her to cap it all off was found the blood of the prophets and of saints and of all that were slain upon the earth. She is guilty of stumbling, believer and unbeliever alike. And so it is fitting that a millstone would be put upon her. Because isn't that what Jesus said? If you stumble even one of these little ones I've created, 
It'd be better for you to hang a millstone around your neck and throw yourself into the sea. Well, she doesn't. She says, no, I won't be removed. And so God puts a millstone on her and he throws her into the sea. Destroyed, never, ever to return. And these closing words, it echoes the words of Isaiah the prophet. The city of Babylon, like Sodom and Gomorrah, will never, ever rise again. Which, guys, that's another reason not to invest in these things. They're going away. They're going to be destroyed. We read in our scripture reading in Hebrews chapter 11, you know, earlier, we read about how they were looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. Let's be those who seek a different city like those who have faithfully gone before us. And what does that mean? Does it mean we just live in a cave and we study our Bible all day? Does that mean it's wrong to have a job or own a business? No, no, no. Look at Abraham's life. Look at all the context of Hebrews 11. You know, Abraham had flocks. Abraham eventually even became a wealthy man. But the key is he, he left Babylon behind. He left his old pursuits behind and he, he lived for the Lord. And he lived for the Lord even though he may have amassed some of those nice things. He followed the Lord even though he never laid a single stone in the ground to make a home in the land that God said was his. What are you living for? What makes life worth living to you? Is it Babylon the Great or is it the New Jerusalem that's coming? Let's all stand. Lord Jesus, in many things were said today by me and anything that was said that was not of you, I prayed, strike it from people's minds. But Lord, the things that are of your word, your clear call to come out, to separate ourselves from Babylon, to be your sons, to be your daughters, to invest in the new Jerusalem, the kingdom that's coming, the city that's coming that will never, ever fade. Lord, that word, let it, Lord, let it not just find root, but let it find its way into all of our thinking that we would be those who are living for you, full on for you. Lord, whether we're rich or poor, whether things are, you know, the business is going well or it's struggling, Lord, we don't want to be those who live for pleasure. We want to be those who will run to you. So every person right now, maybe, Lord, they're saying, Lord, I'm done, I'm done. I'm done with this aspect of Babylon. I know, I know, I know this is Babylon in my life, and I'm done with it. As they are committing to you to come out, God, I pray that you would forgive them. I pray you'd wash them. I pray you'd fill them with your spirit. Give them the strength to overcome that temptation. Lord, even as some might be saying, God, I know my problem is my mindset. My mindset is I, I think I need this to be happy. Even as some are saying, Lord, I'm gonna trust you and believe I don't need it. I'm gonna run to you. Trust that I'll find everything I need in you like Abraham did. Lord, if, as some are praying that, Lord, would you wrap them in your arms? Would you hold them close? Would you empower them, Lord, to stay out of Babylon? Would you empower us all, Lord, to live for New Jerusalem? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.